Hello, and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nappen, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Paul Dylan Ennis on Ethereum's political philosophy explained. So let's jump straight into it. Paul, you've described yourself as crypto first, academic second. What do you mean by this? Yes, so basically my trajectory, I guess, begins with crypto first. So I didn't sort of start, like I wasn't an academic who became interested in cryptocurrency. I was a cryptocurrency person who was researching completely different stuff. So my background is in philosophy. So my PhD is in philosophy, completely different discipline. And then just by uh, chance, I ended up landing a position in a business school. And then this coincided with the, the blockchain mania, the 2015 blockchain, uh, forgotten lore of a uh, blockchain. Um, so, uh, you know, I basically recalibrated my academic, um, you know, skill set to become a cryptocurrency person. But so my history, my history of cryptocurrency enthusiasm precedes uh, crypto academia by a number of years. So I was interested in, um, I was always interested in subcultures or outsider cultures. So I started out with Silk Road. That's how I got interested in uh, cryptocurrency in general. I was fascinated by this story of a, a what was then known as the Dread Pirate Roberts, this elusive, um, almost a romantic figure, a bandit leader who was uh, taking on the government, taking on the state. And I like that outsider alternative aspect too. And that's what got me interested in Bitcoin. And then I got interested in alternative cryptocurrencies. And then I got interested in mining and so I, I ended up in that Bitcoin talk kind of world. So it's always been natural for me to hang around in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community uh, naturally. So that's my natural sort of habitat anyway. And then even before I was doing academia, I was writing for places like Coindesk uh, because it was sort of an easy way for me to make money as a graduate student um, and uh, early academic. So I'm very, I guess, uh, I'm pro-crypto which I sometimes feel is it's changing now, but for a long time, that was a bit unusual. Most people who are crypto academics were basically critics. Um, and I feel like I'm surrounded by a lot of critics and skeptics in the, in the business school generally uh, around cryptocurrency. But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I guess my position is a little bit unusual in that I'm, uh, I am critical of cryptocurrency. I see the flaws, but I'm definitely um, a believer and an enthusiast and a hobbyist. Uh, and that, that for me comes first. And then the, the academic stuff is uh, the day job. It's a really interesting take, and I think it shines through in your work. I'll put a link in the show notes to Digital Gold, which is an excellent kind of narrative style book on the sort of Silk Road, Dread Pirate Roberts beginning, and also a, an Australian claim to fame. You did have a great article in Coindesk on Ethereum's political philosophy. Could you talk us through that? Yes. Yeah, so... This comes from a little bit of an interest in the fact that Bitcoin's politics are, are super well known. Everybody can give you a, every you know, new person that comes to uh, cryptocurrency research can give you a, an overview of Bitcoin's politics. Presumably this comes from, you know, your entry point is Bitcoin. Um, the, the literature is, it, like, it has well documented Bitcoin's politics quite well. So you can probably say something like, um, Bitcoin is a theory of society. That's what Lana Schwartz says. 
It's about the collapse of fiat, you know, the collapse of the inherited financial system. It's got elements of cypherpunk, so infrastructural mutualism. We're going to build some kind of cash, anonymous cash. We've got a hacker engineer disposition, as Brecca puts it. Uh, and then all this kind of stuff around replacing human institutions with apolitical structures. So algorithmic authority, as Lustig and Nardi put it. So these are almost like the standards of, of uh, you know, early crypto research. And then, you know, you've got your underlying crypto anarchism, the, the digital metalists, the libertarianism, all that kind of stuff. So it's super well articulated. And I find when I'm teaching cryptocurrency that I'm well served with Bitcoin's, you know, social political history, where it came from. But when I'm talking about Ethereum, it's a bit more ambiguous. It's not so well articulated. Um, so in a recent article, which is basically where the Ethereum's political philosophy uh, explained the source from, Myself, my colleagues, uh, Professor Dunica Kavanagh, Professor Luis uh, Arujo, we, we go through all the different social and political imaginaries that were uh, that we could find in Ethereum. So we have the you know the non non political ones like the technical world computer motif, the idea that money is supposed to be functional or used for powering smart contracts. Although that's changing, right? Because we've got the uh, sound money arguments like seeping into uh, Ethereum too. And then the aesthetic side, the NFTs, the creative aspect of it. But in the midst of that, I think we identified basically something like an emergent political view. So there's a, a we, we identified three imaginaries that could be construed, I guess, as political, which would be a directly political one. So the cypherpunk mutualism, that's still there in Ethereum. It's more powerful and it's much more to the front as opposed to the, uh, you know, digital metalist uh, libertarian aspect of it. And then there's also this ethical part, which I think is really interesting, of trying to reach the, um, trying to restore a sense of community, the public goods uh, meme or, you know, uh, discussion. So we call these public goods communists. In an article I have coming out on Coindesk probably today, I call them venture com uh, venture communists. So uh, communists instead of uh, communists, because, of course, no crypto person would ever call themselves that. And then organizational, that is a decentralized engineering uh, aspect to it. Um, and then there's this uh, running tread, which is about reimagining corrupted democratic institutions. That's where the flirtation with radical markets, radical liberalism, the Glenn Vile stuff uh, seemed to come from. A lot of what Buterin is talking about there is basically a dissatisfaction with the institutions and like the need to replace them. So I, I propose, um, I'm very tentatively with these articles, I'm, I'm essentially trying to propose that Ethereum does have a politics it's a politics of hyper governance where you're trying to conjure up new forms of governance um, with the decentralization part. So the regulative ideal of decentralization, which is, of course, the, the common thread to everything. But then that Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, you know, it's not doing this in some kind of confrontational way, the way Bitcoin is, even though that's a little bit ambiguous. El Salvador. Um, but of course, crypto is full of contradictions. So I think that's just normal. Uh, but it's not it's not doing this in the uh, controversial uh, um, confrontational way, but that all the same, it seems like they're running towards something like creating uh, surrogate state functions without wanting to be a state. So there's some kind of like stateless state uh, approach to this. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this idea that it's almost like an unconscious politics of providing minimal state functions for the commons. So the mutualism part, but being a little bit hands off about it. So decentralized libertarian so I call it um, mutualist minarchism or minimal mutual uh, governance. So, you know, I know that it's going to be, it's a little bit, you know, um, uh, 
like knowing the crypto community as I do, it's going to be uh, tricky to, you know, push something forward like this because every everybody is trying to put forward um, a political position in crypto. I think can like expect a hostile reaction uh, from the different factions. It's quite interesting that I guess what you propose is that Ethereum's politics haven't been well expressed and to kind of come as an insider outside in and uh, sort of reflect that back to the community. Why do you think that um, quadratic, like, I mean, the meme is still very much alive around sort of quadratic funding and radical markets. Why do you think that was a flirtation? Um, yeah, I mean, it's super, super interesting that this um, uh, public goods uh, narrative emerged. Um, I don't know where uh, Buterin came across this. It must have just been like randomly in discussion with somebody, some friend, and it just took his imagination. And since then, it, it's basically filtered through, uh, mostly through Gitcoin, through people like Scott Moore, uh, people like that. So, I mean, my I like this team in spirit. Um, and I think what I think the reason that it exists is because there is no there is a, a sort of a empty gap at the heart of Ethereum about what the project is supposed to be. So everybody knows that they're they're doing something. So they're building something in a prefigurative way. So they, they know that they don't want to live in the inherited system, that the, the current uh, system that they've inherited is flawed. So cryptocurrency is basically a symptom in the same way Wall Street bets is. So you know you want something different. So in the cryptocurrency spirit, because you can kind of just make that happen because there's like a financial aspect to it. So you just like immediately start building. And then retroactively, you ask yourself the question, what exactly are we doing? And so I think that's what Ethereum is in the, the process of. And so, I mean, what mostly what I'm doing is I'm basically just like introducing the idea of like, what is Ethereum supposed to be for in the long term? Like, is it actually an attempt uh, to build analogs to what already exists in the state? And then what exactly are the implications of that? What does it mean to really become the commons, like to be the people that provide um, infrastructure like finance? Okay, we're going to replace the existing financial system plus the organizational system with DAOs. Uh, and then plus the art scene, like even just like kind of it's slowly expanding. So I think public goods fits in there as a nice way to say, well, this is what we're about. Like it's it's always been it's always been about public goods. We just didn't know it uh, in the beginning. Um, and at that being said, one of the things that's interesting as well about the public goods uh, discussion is that you can see that. Um, you know, it's not like super well developed. Like it, it you can see they're they're trying to address that the Gitcoin community in particular with that competition. Um, you know, giving you like one ETH to, to write stuff, which I think is probably the future of some like uh, some futuristic uh, academic structures where you're basically paying your students like one ether to write something on public goods. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I think there there is a, also an awareness that there's a, a lack of the articulation of, of what public goods is. So at the moment, you'll just get essays that say like, you know, they'll give you the definition of like, you know, non-excludable, non-rivalrous. Uh, what is the public? Uh, well, what is the public? Uh, well, it's going to be like people beyond Ethereum, but it's left pretty ambiguous. And then what is a good? And then it will be uh, open source software. And then to me, what's interesting is, okay, w what exactly are the other public goods? Like is it the Ethereum infrastructure, uh, Ethereum blockchain, and then how far out do we push it? Like what parts of the ecosystem is a public good and what part are like pure venture? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point that as someone who's kind of inside, outside and observing back in, you've actually, you know, been able to articulate some of what's going on here in terms of the political philosophy of Ethereum. A few of the things you mentioned there are new financial infrastructures, which is uh, decentralized finance or DeFi, uh, DAOs, so decentralized autonomous organizations, and cultural expressions, which is, um, you know, NFTs and other kind of creative uh, industries emerging uh, sort of in and through blockchain technology. To your point about hyper-governance, what have you observed in the DAOs that you've been a part of? Yes, I think... um... Like a lot of people, I basically relegated um, DAOs to the the story of DAO. So the famous uh, 2016 case where you know uh, the DAO concept is introduced, and then very very quickly uh, it gets hacked, and all the the hubris around that, where uh, it seemed like you know we were going to introduce this new technology where everything would run autonomously on smart contracts, and then like reality kicked in because you know there was a, a flaw in in the code, and code is law, and all this kind of thing. So basically, I I for I'd, I'd placed DAOs in this category of not not quite failed, but something that didn't really seem like it was going to get taken up uh, for a long time. I was always interested, and you know, I was curious to look out to see if it ever came back. But basically, yeah, I thought that it was uh, gone for a few years. Uh, and then when uh, DeFi summer came along, and then also the the resurgence of NFTs, I started looking into it again. So I started looking into um, uh, DeFi DAOs at first. So I started looking into you know all the the kind of the major ones, Yearn and Sushi, and all the the kind of scandals and stories around those. And I found them, um, you know, I found them super interesting. And then I discovered that there had been people doing kind of Trojan work over the last few years who still remained uh, committed to the DAO concept, like uh, like MakerDAO, and then also uh, on the, the social side, places like MetaCartel. So they were still committed to it. So I, I rediscovered it, uh, and I basically see these as having rescued, uh, rescued cryptocurrency in general because they restored this idea of actual decentralization, that like what we're supposed to be doing is we're not supposed to be simply deferring to the leaders of like Bitcoin or the leaders of Ethereum. We're supposed to be creating like micro social communities that then use technologies in certain ways. So even though I like DeFi, I'm very interested in it. it, it those projects to me are quite big and quite large and they feel uh, very close to you know, like what already exists in the world. So they're, they're trying to create like alternative finance, of course. But um, a lot of it to me feels like very financialization kind of like world, like everything's obsessed with like liquidity and uh, liquidity pools and all that kind of stuff and interest. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where I heard about it, but I basically was pushed into this direction of looking into the social token DAOs. So the trifecta, uh, Friends with Benefits, uh, C Club and uh, Forefront, which are basically, uh, they're DAOs, but they're DAOs with a very light touch. So they, they, you know, they call themselves a DAO, but they don't really have much interest in, say, like um, the smart contract is, is their primary focus. The primary focus is being a community that organizes itself in a non-hierarchical, uh, horizontal kind of way and almost coming together as, as a, a mutualist community, sharing know-how, sharing social pragmatic skills, tacit knowledge between each other. And they, they often mix like in between each other. They, they, they like a lot of the people in each day were like in the other, all that kind of stuff. So what I noticed immediately when I, I got interested in these ones in particular is the emphasis on creativity. 
So the idea that like we're the, the primary aim of uh, a social uh, DAO is to create like interesting art because like community that's what communities that are functioning well do. They're 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 expressing themselves. So like that that's what they're oriented toward. And that was to me was very interesting that the the financial side isn't that important. And in fact, money talk is more or less banned from the social token DAO. So even though the tokens are doing particularly well, you're not allowed to talk about them. It's not enforced in some kind of rigorous way. It's just enforced as like an informal, we don't talk about the money uh, or the price, which I think is really healthy. The other thing is the demographics are much different. So um, when I uh, teach introduction to cryptocurrencies, um, we're in the Bitcoin era. I always show them uh, this this story from a few years ago where they do a demographic study of Bitcoin. It's like ninety two percent male. Uh, it's a, and it's basically the person in the image. Uh, like they they show all the different uh, results of the survey. Like it's it's very predictably the person you imagine who's interested in Bitcoin in two thousand and fifteen. Whereas today, if I drop into a social token DAO, I've got like every different type of person you know in there. So that's a huge um, kind of shift. And then the other thing is that that I've observed is the uh, evoking of the the blockchain, the evoking of like the technical infrastructure is actually very rare and it's used with a light touch. So if you're, if there's a, every, like they might do something, this would be quite common in the social token DAO. They have a season and they say like the season is going to be for the next few months. Everybody is going to work as part of the a guild working towards some common aim. Um, and then they'll say, okay, like let the team of the, of the season is uh, moving forward. And then this is how much money we're allocating. And that goes to a blockchain vote. And then that's it. That's kind of like the only blockchain vote that you do. Everything else is done informally amongst each other. Mm. Um, uh, Yeah, to me, like that, that's the the major difference that the technical part is receding and the community part is coming to to the fore. That's, that's incredibly fascinating. I'm, I'm curious as to, I mean, my sort of, one of my current obsessions is this idea of autonomy and decentralized autonomous organizations. And from what you've described in the kind of micro DAO settings, this self-governance generally works. Like, do you see, uh, you know, epic community clashes and outfallings or, um, or is it kind of functioning and, and the season objectives are pursued? Yeah, this is where it's starting to get interesting because one of the things I've been saying to people for a while is that there is a real absence of the adversarial um, uh, question. So if I like always in like on Bitcoin talk in the the Reddits during the Civil War and then you know during the the Ethereum era, which kind of branches over different social like forums. Um, there was always an adversarial uh, angle to it. I always just felt if I'm entering these spaces, I I'm prepared for possibly getting into some kind of like argument by making any kind of point. Like if I put something forward, uh, like trying to contribute in some kind of way that, you know, it's very likely that somebody will, will clash with me and that that was the, the expected environment. And that's a little bit of an inheritance of open source, you know, computer hacker engineer type culture. You're just sort of expected to be, uh, yeah, people are way more, people are, are brash in a way they wouldn't be in say like everyday society. And that that's something that's, held cryptocurrency back for a long time i think uh, that you you feel like you're you know you're expected to be a a master coder of some sort or like really politically well versed in like obscure libertarianism or something like that um whereas in these social DAOs, uh you don't see that you don't see uh much of that you get much more of a sense of friendliness of like welcoming people 
Um, if people don't know how things work, you're more likely to get a response of, you know, well, like, you know, neither did I two weeks ago, like, or something like that. There's also a big aspect that these people are often coming into cryptocurrency within the last year, six months to like the last year. Some of the interesting people I follow, like NFT archaeologists, so people who discover like obscure, forgotten work on the blockchain, they came in around March uh, of like of last year. So when the pandemic hit, they became NFT archaeologists, you know, very quickly. And so they don't have the same, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the assumptions that used to carry don't carry anymore. So they could see the archaeology of the NFTs because we're blinded to that because we think it's like old and forgotten. So I do think it's different. But one thing that started to come up is the question of culture fit. So there are little clashes beginning to happen, which to me are very interesting, which are around things like maybe um, uh, how the community talks to each other, what maybe are the kind of political stances that you're expected to have. So social token DAOs are very progressive. So they have like straightforwardly um, like progressive liberal views. So they don't have that conservatism that's characteristic of a lot of cryptocurrency culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the opposite thing where if somebody isn't a, a fit to that kind of like progressive liberal view that they're now seen as sort of like the outsider. So that's something I'm starting to notice. Um, and then, But at the same time, people are trying to figure out, they don't just want to say like, that means like you're excluded or banned from the community. They're trying to figure out like, how do we, we reach a way that we can... Um, uh, talk to each other directly. So one of the other things is about candor, radical candor. Like hmm. how do we kind of set expectations in a in a, uh, a small DAO? Like it might be the case that you just have to be very blunt, but, you know, and then is that maybe the origin of how the old open source communities, you know, became so brash? Yeah, I mean, it so depends which uh, corner of the metaverse you look in. And, and I'm aware that we're speaking of a generalization of kind of this, micro you know social token communities and it would be very different on you know perhaps like larger protocols that emphasize on-chain governance and you know you mentioned just just one small blockchain vote versus like still very technocratic kind of cultures but what sort of things are you seeing people accomplish in these collectives um yeah so i mean there there are a lot of uh like crazy um, examples out there. I guess trying to think of recent ones. Um, so Friends with Benefits is, is a good example. They've done, you know, uh, in real life uh, curated parties. You know, they, they've... You might have they've to explain it. what Friends with Benefits is. Oh, sorry, yeah. So Friends with Benefits, <laughs> is, um, it's a token-gated uh, social DAO. So this is, this is one of those things where I'm so immersed in it that I can't see that other people can't see it. So there, you basically, you pay 75, um, you buy like 75 friends with benefits tokens, and that gives you access to the discord. So now you're a member, like you're a friend with benefits, right? So you're able to like, you know, participate with all the different people uh, in that DAO. So what would happen typically is you come in with an idea and you say, can anybody help me realize this like creative endeavor? So that might be like, let's make some music, let's do some NFTs. And then you would drop into the appropriate like social section but, and then ask people and then other people would form uh, together. You would form almost like a micro community DAO and you make that, that thing happen. So they're becoming more ambitious with it and basically trying to recreate something like Soho House, you know, a place where you uh, pay a subscription and you get to like hang out exclusively. They've been toying around with that. They've been doing that for uh, events like the Ethereum event in Paris. 
they had parties where you could only enter the party if you had friends with benefits, the, the token. So that, that's the beginning of what I see as a, in that direction. They're now doing, um, I think it's called CityDAO, where the same thing will happen. There will be privileges of owning this like friends with benefits token based on your city. So if you live in London, uh, you can go to London, you can connect with the other people in London as like friends with benefits people. Um, and then, you know, uh, like predictably like plug into that, that city, regardless of where you're from, you can always drop in. So that, that's something I'm starting to see. There's also really interesting stuff around like creating uh, clothing lines, things like that. So meta cartel, meta factory, you know, creating uh, items. Um, probably the most interesting uh, one that's happening at the moment is loot, uh, L-O-O-T, loot for adventurers. So this is a game that's created, uh, the NFT is simply an image, like it's a black screen with white text, and it contains a bunch of attributes. So it, you know, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons style attributes. Um, and so you, uh, you buy, you mint this NFT, so it's a free to mint, like they're, they're uh, you pay the gas fee, but it's free to, to mint. And then that's it. Like you get this NFT and then the community has to form itself. So what's happening very, very quickly is uh, people are identifying with some of the, the traits or characteristics the, of the loot um, and then forming uh, guilds and communities. And then they're, they're in the process now of like, so some people are building the attributes for the characters. Some people are building the location, the realm. And then some people are building like different parts. And so they're building the game in real time using the kind of creative energy of all the different people. And in typical NFT fashion, you know, the, the cost of this NFT is now the, 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 the top one um, called uh, um, Divine Robes is selling for 30 ETH. So like 100,000 US dollars. So um, and of course, that, that, that propels this whole thing because, you know, there's this sort of sense that you can... Um, yeah, like there's a financial incentive too. Yeah, so I think for me, it's just all about this creative uh, DIY punkish aspect to it, which is super interesting. I think it's all always about replicating what exists, but with a more direct sense of ownership, you know, where you're, you're cutting out. The, it's the classic disintermediating the middleman, except the middleman now is no longer uh, the Federal Reserve. It's companies, you know, it's, uh, it's record companies. That's what they're trying to uh, disintermediate. Yeah, the kind of next wave of digital platforms. And it's a good point in terms of actually the the bridge between the digital and the physical has come largely through the kind of creative social aspects, not the sort of heavy technical infrastructural side of, of this whole space. You're very positive and obviously so deeply involved in a lot of these communities as, as, a, as a researcher and a sort of participant observer. Um, one word that you use in some of your work is this idea of prefiguration and putting politics into action without necessarily knowing the end goal. Do you see any risks to the sort of experimentation that's happening in um, blockchain or, or DAOs or... NFTs. Yeah, um, definitely. There's a so this this term is um, it's kind of out there, but it's not usually um, well known or, or used uh, enough. Even though I think it really fits what's going on in cryptocurrency quite a bit. So it comes from um, research into Occupy uh, Wall Street. Um, I think it's from the Indignados. So live as if you're already free is the, the catchphrase that they would use. So this would all come from, you know, people like David Graeber, uh, that era of um, 
financial activism and trying to figure out what people were doing because at that time there was a big sense of people knowing that there is a problem uh, but you um, you don't really have the solution and I think that that's something that was very characteristic of that uh, Occupy Wall Street era there's a problem um, but we don't really have a solution and then with with something like Ethereum uh, or cryptocurrency in general you can see that there's this um, interesting paradox where they're building in the here and now but they don't have a defined plan except that what exists now is like not for you. So it's all about this symptomatic nature. It's this sense that um, what exists is so uh, like so contaminated or like so toxic. It's so generationally skewed that you're just going to get involved in anything. So you're going to get involved in Wall Street bets. You're going to get involved in like uh, buying NFTs uh, that cost 30 ETH. Um, you know, all this kind of like crazy uh, like uh, stuff. I think that that's missed when people critique cryptocurrency and when they critique Wall Street bets is the sense of like generational um, indignation about the, the, the dire nature of the situation. So even though uh, people might be um, like relatively well off by being, say, like Westerners, they're, they're like relatively not so well off compared to their parents because they can't get onto the property ladder, all that kind of thing. So there's almost a lottery element uh, to it. But I think primarily it's just a sense of at least uh, this is our thing. At least there is some kind of sense of a pathway forward, even if it's uh, a little bit of a, a risky venture. So that's kind of why I go with like venture communists. So it's like we're, we want the commons, but we're still going to do the adventure moonshot kind of stuff with it, which is actually what Gitcoin calls their, uh, the, the moon bots. That's moon, their yeah, moonshot collective, yeah. Um, so I think the ambiguity, of course, is that... Um, Everybody knows that they uh, like we need to do something, but nobody's really uh, willing to think about the long term implications of where all this is going. Mm. And so that so that is sort of yeah what I'm pushing that there's a um, there, you know, it could end up in it could end up it could end up in a few years looking very similar to something like Occupy Wall Street, where there was like like a lot of energy um, put into it. There was a lot of recognition of the flaws of the current system. Uh, and it was a missed opportunity. So I think that that's, that's a huge uh, aspect of it. Um, and I guess the, the, the major, the elephant in the room is always the, 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 the pure inequalities that exist in cryptocurrency. So you, either, you always have this early mover advantage, advantage kind of situation. So those who get in early can become the, the NFT whales or, or that kind of thing. And then, you know, the people who come after, they tend to get caught up in the, uh, the kind of scam projects. Um, and I think there's also a sense in which cryptocurrency users are blind to how there is this um, scam uh, moat around them. So if you're in Gitcoin, if you're in yeah those like infrastructural DeFi projects, or you're in Friends with Benefits and Seed Club, like you're seeing all the positive good stuff. You're seeing all the creativity, the energy, and it's like we're going to replace the the financial system and. Like we've got 300% uh, yields versus your bank account, which is giving you nothing, all that kind of stuff. But if you step outside that and you start looking at, say, YouTube and you start searching YouTube uh, cryptocurrency channels, uh, there's a guy called CoffeeZilla who uncovers basically influencer scams on YouTube and all this kind of stuff. Like you'll find a really, really like um, ultra scam uh, kind of world, which is targeting people who are very naive uh, which is targeting people with like limited knowledge uh, of the of the kind of space. So I think the probably the biggest problem is this um, 
you know, uh, the fact that it's so difficult and it takes so much energy to become a Web3 native, you know, using MetaMask, interacting with contracts, that it's really, really easy to exploit the gap that exists between it. And so my fear, my biggest fear is that so many people are being turned off before we even realize it. So we, we think we're bringing everybody in and they're all coming in, but actually we're blind to the fact that people are being like turned off it. But it's not because of us or because of the social DAO or because of the DeFi projects. It's because of all these like hidden to us projects of uh, like outrageous scams going on around it quietly. Mm, and I guess that's what, uh, you know, regulators keep, um, you know, raising the flag on it and as well in, in terms of um, consumer protection. Uh, another thing that you mention in an article uh, with D. Kavanaugh is the idea of cryptocurrencies and the emergence of blockocracy, which is kind of this, um, you compare it, I guess, to, to, the, to the idea of the, a bureaucrat, which is to say that they're still incredibly bureaucratic organisations and this sort of self-governance uh, is uh, hyper-governance. It's not the absence of uh, governance processes. Can you comment more on that? Yeah, uh, the first thing I'd say is that uh, uh, so Dunica Kavanagh, Professor Dunica Kavanagh, he's great with um, coming up with... Uh, terms so blockocracy is his term um he's basically like a machine for coming up with these eye-catching uh, kind of phrases so in the article we talk about um so but yeah at that time so this is 2019 um and at that stage you know um i know people are more and more interested now in the idea of crypto uh, bureaucracies um but really at this point i think we were we weren't, we weren't thinking about DAOs, of course, we we're thinking about Bitcoin. So it's a Bitcoin article, so it's still from that era. It's basically a broad socio-technical description of blockchains with Bitcoin as the case study. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we put it, um, sort of the elevator pitch, the blockocracy, the set of procedures and practices designed to achieve a particular end, um, true using permissionless blockchain. So for example, you might want to create a, a, you know, a decentralized digital ledger or a decentralized world computer. Um, and so the blockocracy is basically the mechanism by which you uh, make the world computer happen or make the decentralized money happen. Um, so we're, yeah, we're definitely, we're drawing a comparison there between uh, blockchain organizational cultures and uh, bureaucracies. So we say the organizational culture. So my official subject area that I, I uh, research in when I you know don't say I'm a cryptocurrency researcher would be like organization studies. Um, although I, I, I don't have like a huge affiliation with the, the subject area. So the organizational culture, you know, um, it rules over a jurisdiction. So the same way a bureaucracy would. Uh, the jurisdiction is the blockchain or the peer-to-peer network. Uh, you've got some kind of like written rules, which are BIPs in the case of Bitcoin. So the, you know, uh, Bitcoin improvement po- uh, protocols. And then there's, you know, more official hard-coded rules or laws, the, the, uh, the code itself. And then... Probably the more interesting part is that the developers and the miners occupy this position as blockocrats, and they. Uh, but I guess what's interesting is that the blockocrats see the uh, jurisdiction differently, so they're almost like they're from different departments. So we could imagine the developers are in one department; they see <laughs> the blockchain as uh, a public good, right? So th- like this public good discussion was in that article. Um, I think that, that's something I've said to Dunica that he was very prescient in this regard. He, he, he saw this quite early on. Um, that, so yeah, the developers see it as a public good, which is common like, to DAOs now as well, of course. 
So people can't be excluded from the blockchain. Using the blockchain doesn't diminish it for anyone else. So non-rivalrous, non-excludable. And then the miners, they're, they're kind of, they see it differently. They see a common pool resource because although people can't be stopped from mining, right, you can't really stop from mining uh, other people from mining, even though, of course, right, you don't have any chance. But at least in theory, you can get a mining machine and point it. Um, but you do use them up, right? So it is rivalrous when you uh, get those Bitcoins, when the miners get the Bitcoins, they do actually use them up. So it is rivalrous. Um, we didn't go much further than that. That That's sort of where, um, that's as far as we got. I guess, you know, we were early enough that all we had to do was compare it to uh, mm. to a blockocracy. Um, um, yeah, I guess yeah, probably the most interesting part of the article really is the fact that it yeah, it's probably like an early reference to public goods in the space. And then, I've always hoped that the term would get picked up, uh, blockocracy, because I just think it's really good. So I, I try to drop it into everything I do in the hope that somebody will, uh, that it will catch, you know, like meme quality. Let's try and make it happen. Yeah, I'll try and meme it from, from this. It's, and I mean, to your previous point from within the blockocracy, it's fantastic, no matter what your department uh, from the outside, it's quite a different view, perhaps, and, and sort of different um uh, barriers to entry in, in some cases as well, to, or barriers to benefit uh, from that system in some ways. So what else are you currently working on slash doing? Because I know that not only are you writing a book, but you're experimenting with your own DAO as well, which is sometimes the best way to learn these things. And then where can people find you? Yeah, so... Um... I'm foolishly uh, uh, working on a on a book called the Ethereum Ecosystem. So I I have written uh, books before and edited books before, but kind of like a while back, and I've always been afraid of doing it for like crypto because everything moves so fast. But I feel like at some point I have to do it. So that that's called uh, the Ethereum Ecosystem, and I'm around. I don't know how far into it, but uh, like it's actually making some progress. So I'm happy to let people know it exists. I'd like in the future to do something on, uh, you know, introduction to cryptocurrencies, but probably when things uh, calm down uh, a little bit. Um, I'm writing an article on uh, teaching cryptocurrency as a cultural phenomenon. So this is something I'm, I'm quite interested in is the idea of how do you teach crypto, uh, not from a technical perspective. So that's, you know, the computer science department and not from the financial perspective, which, you know, the markets, I'm, I'm always trying to push it as, uh, the crypto culture is kind of thing. So just writing an article on, on how you can provide cultural explanations for stuff that happens uh, in crypto without having to go to like the technical or financial side. Uh, I'm doing an edited collection with uh, Quinn DuPont and Dunica Kavanagh again uh, called Crypto Carnivals. And that basically features a whole bunch of people writing about, uh, I guess, the, the more chaotic um uh, anarchistic side of stuff, you know, the creative. It's, so the idea is like what, like the cryptocurrency is a kind carni- of a carnival where you know you you turn up and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening everywhere, and it's it's got some rules, but they're like loosely enforced, that kind of thing. Um, and then basically allowing people to write more or less whatever they want, you know, within certain restrictions. So um, I think that will be interesting. And then yeah, uh, the main focus is articles on political economy again, and the the public goods question is is the the main uh, I guess article focus. And then in terms of DAOs, yeah, so I'm involved in a few DAOs. Um, probably the one that I'm most directly involved is LearnDAO. So I'm a co-founder with Adam uh, Bloomberg, who uh, is essentially he's, he's somebody who's been teaching cryptocurrency in a very 
um, natural way. He does it through videos. Uh, it's just him and a whiteboard. And when I saw his videos, I just wrote to him and said, like, this is super interesting. He's just he's basically doing what I do, but in a much more uh, kind of open way. And then we were trying to, I guess, find something like in between, uh, like web tree uh, kind of thing. And then also that's just a way for me to learn, um, you know, how DAOs work when you're actually trying to run them, which is a, a whole different uh, experience. How do you motivate people? How do you create tokens? All that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so I'm a big believer in, you know, you, you should try to do uh, these things if you can. Um, and then in terms of like a uh, uh, username where you can find me, so on Twitter, um, on uh, GitHub. Uh, so I currently have a, a an issue raised on GitHub about the Ethereum white paper if anyone wants to comment and you know, trying to get some traction on it. Um, so, uh, so on Twitter, Telegram and Discord, I'm uh, Algorithm Labs, so A-G-O-R-I-S-M. And yeah, if you drop into any of those, especially on Discord, you can just message me and I'll plug you into some of the social DAOs. Can I ask what the open issue is on, on GitHub to do with the Ethereum white paper? Yeah, um, and I think this might be interesting to academics. So it's about the problem of citing the, the white paper. So uh, at the moment... Um, it's written by Gavin Wood, you know, right? Sorry? It's authored by Gavin Wood on the copy that's on the sorry. Uh, Gavin, Gavin's one's okay. The yellow, the yellow paper okay. is good. It's yeah. kind of like nicely done, but Vitalik's, you know, kind of conceptual one is um, just just in citation terms is a little bit all over the over the place. So if you go to Google Scholar, you'll see the main citation. It links to something called like translatedpages.com. So somebody just made a PDF of it, and that's that's uh, like just a web page basically. And the year is given as two thousand and fourteen. And then the next most cited is a Polish translation, um, you know, which is official, but like not, not super helpful. Uh, that gives, I think, 2013. And then there's this question over when the white paper was actually written. So we, there's in, in different places, you'll see 2013 uh, and then you'll see 2014. So there's ambiguity over when, what's the official date. And so in different books, even about Ethereum, different dates over when the white paper was written uh, are given and even different names and titles are given uh, as well for uh, in say out of the other that book gives a different title from uh, Russo's The Infinite Machine so it's there's something wrong there from from the academic perspective it also has no pagination right so you can't like do page numbers which for us is a, is a hassle so I, I just put it up there on github uh, the ethereum.org one and said um, you know can you just make it so that we have an official thing give us a little question box and say you know, um, like uh, the white paper was made in 2013, but 2014 is the official one that you should cite or something like that. So I, I posted it. Uh, I got a good response in the Discord from the, they said that they're working on it. They're, they're aware of it. Um, but the more people that kind of like respond to it, the more likely to get some traction on it. So um, I, I guess it's a good, good idea as well. It's something I encourage uh, like my students as well. I always say, if you have an issue like that in crypto, the cool thing for us uh, as researchers is you can just go and fix it. You can just write to them and say, uh, which you couldn't do in mo most places, you know, you wouldn't be able to so directly, uh, like self uh, selfishly uh, fix a problem that should have some, you know, use beyond yourself. So I guess it's a public goods type approach. Yeah. Well, citation is very important uh, to all the academics that are interested in researching this space but I also agree that sometimes Twitter DMs can be the easiest way to make initial contacts with potential research participants. 
So final question, what do you think uh, success looks like for Ethereum's political economy in 10 years' time? Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's um, that's sort of the, yeah, the direction that I feel I'm, I'm like the first step along. So 10 years in cryptocurrency, of course, is, you know, uh, 100 years in, in, in normal time. Um, so I, I do think when I, at least with the future of Ethereum, when it comes to the future of Ethereum, I do, I am very much, um, I'm very bullish on it in a like non-market sense. I do think we'll be studying it for a long time. Um, I wouldn't call myself a maximalist. I'm definitely like not a maximalist. I don't even really understand the, like the point of maximalism. They're also similar. It's like a family fighting or something. Um, I think the first thing that's probably most likely to happen is quite predictable which is that bitcoin gets flipped by ethereum at some stage just because there's like so much action that happens on ethereum for most people entering uh, the cryptocurrency space ethereum is cryptocurrency you know bitcoin might as well exist as some forgotten uh you know mythological artifact that you know they they never really touch or maybe they own it and they put it in their coinbase wallet and it sits there i know from my own experience you know i haven't touched my bitcoin in a long time it's just sort of there uh, it exists, whereas Ethereum, you know, I'll I'll use it like quite a bit. So it has more of a sense of something that's a real uh, currency, even though that's the one thing that the Bitcoiners, of course, would claim uh, their, well, maybe not currency, but money is their, their kind of like a unique selling point. So um, I do think, uh, you know, that will happen. I'm also open to the possibility, of course, that something comes along and displaces it. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be naive enough to think that it's a guarantee, you know, something could easily uh, emerge, which we haven't foreseen. Um, so I think there'll be uh, two, there's two uh, slightly contradictory trends that seem to be emerging. Uh, but I think, you know, contradictory uh, is like the natural state of cryptocurrency. So when I, um, when I say contradictory, I think that that's, that's in line with, uh, you know, what typically tends to happen. So I think um, it will become more political. So if, let's say within the next five or 10 years, we should see the, uh, I, I believe that the, there will be a point where Ethereum has to explain what its political message is, or maybe if it's not a political message, it will have to explain itself as some kind of like social organization that's providing all of these services that are kind of similar to what used to exist from the government. Uh, but they've been so denuded that they're, you know, basically like, you know, nothing. So it will, it's, yeah, it's like a community activism kind of thing or a nonprofit organization. Uh, and then potentially, you know, something more political uh, as it comes up against, um, you know, the state. So I think that that's definitely going to happen. Uh, the mutualist minarchism uh, kind of trajectory. Uh, the other thing, I think that by that stage, we should see Vitalik go. I think Vitalik leaves by, you know, in a few years, he'll retire, go work on Dogecoin. Um, you know, and like that, that will also uh, determine quite a few things because the person who comes in as the main influence there will, you know, shape uh, quite a lot. Um, and th the other side of it, I have to say, would be that it's um, is the, the the kind of creative part. You know, I think there's going to be, I think it will for all the political focus that I, I like to make. Um, I don't think this is going to be an austere politics or an overly serious politics. I think all that fun. Uh, do-it-yourself creative energy, like whether like Gitcoin using NFTs to raise money, you know, the way the, that post is like uh, has embedded memes in it and stuff, you know, I think that that's going to become, that that's going to be a, a big selling point of Ethereum's social and political message, that it's not dour 
that it's fun and that you can be part of this um, alternative experiment that is like allowing you to have like creative uh, energies, you know, and then you can also not really participate as well. I can, like if you don't want to be in the politics, you just have your little dough and you make music, you know. So I, 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 can see it, I can see it going in that direction, more politicized, but I don't want it, that to come across like, you know, more serious, uh, like always, you know, and it'll, it'll also be fun and enjoyable. Such a fascinating synthesis of uh, very, very deep work, just kind of uh, living in in these communities in ways. And um, I'll kindly ask that no one comes after you for uh, any perceived criticisms of, of any particular projects. Um, but I think also to your point, there's that uh, kind of public presentation to the world piece about still kind of communicating what is this, but then also the internal... Um, factionalism in a sort of healthy way that the ecosystem is larger than just one person or one kind of, um, um, you know, single culture. Uh, and it has a sort of protocol politicians and, and that sort of very, very active politics unfolding in all different corners. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today and to hear your insights. So thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Paul Dylan Ennis, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback on the podcast on rmitblockchain.io, uh, where there's also lots of links for this one. So thank you. <laughs>